Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Padgett, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. We're excited to bring you this special series of short podcasts, which highlight the winners of our 2020 Combined Section Meeting Awards. This year at CSM, our committee awarded two poster and two platform awards to standout presenters with topics relevant to degenerative diseases. We have put together a series of four podcasts interviewing the awardees and discussing their findings. Welcome to 4D. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I serve as chair of the Degenerative Disease SIG. Today, we're very excited to have as our guest, Lori King, associate professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health Science University and co-director of the Balance Disorders Lab. Lori was the recipient for the Degenerative Disease Section Best Platform Presentation at this year's CSM. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, and thanks for having me here. It's great to have you here today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work at Oregon Health Science University? Great. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Um, As you mentioned, I'm a co-director of the Balance Disorders Lab at Oregon Health Science University. I co-direct the lab with Martina Mancini and Faye Horak, and we run studies in our lab primarily around gait and balance and rehabilitation. And uh, we have multiple different types of studies going on, ranging from the Parkinson's exercise intervention that I talked about at CSM, as well as studies with the, funded by the Department of Defense looking at MTBI and concussion and how to better assess people after injury. Yeah, it's really exciting work. So tell us a little bit about the platform you presented. The platform I presented was based on a study that we just finished uh, within this last year. And it was a study where we looked at an intervention for people with Parkinson's to look at, can we combine cognitive challenge together with motor challenge that we know to be helpful in people with Parkinson's? Can we combine these two concepts to get better results in some of the more difficult aspects of mobility to treat with Parkinson's, things like dual task function and um, freezing of gait and things like that? So it was a five-year study funded jointly from the NIH uh, National Institute of Aging, as well as a VA merit award. And so we combined the funds and were able to execute a pretty large-scale study for this type of work to test the effects of this exercise program. So, Lori, tell us a little bit about how you designed the study. This study was a crossover design. So we had our primary exercise program that we were testing was this combined cognitive motor challenge Um, And then we had a control group that was just education. So we tried to match it for intensity. And then people would go through a six-week either control or or the exercise intervention. And then we'd post-test them. And then then they'd switch over to the other group and then it again. So it was really like a they were tested three times in total. And so with a design like that, what kind of questions were you trying to answer? Well, our primary outcomes... We had a lot of outcomes because one of our secondary questions that we're always trying to 
figure out is what are the best outcome measures to capture change in people with Parkinson's in any study, really. And our lab is really interested in using objective measures like wearable sensors to try to capture outcome measures that might be more sensitive to change or might be more representative of how someone's functioning in the real world. So that was sort of a secondary question that we were looking at as well, sort of what are the best outcome measures? So we looked at the effect size changes across different types of outcome measures. And this is one of the papers that will be out. It's under review right now. So that should be coming out hopefully within a couple months from now. And your main outcome was the mini best? That's right. Yeah. And then you had a lot of the secondary measures included things like gait, postural sway. Yeah, gait, postural sway. And then we, like within gait, we used wearable sensors to sort of look at different aspects of gait. We looked at dual task function as well during gait. And then we had a number of patient reported outcomes as well, like the ADLs aspect of the UPDRS. We really had outcome measures to sort of cover the gamut of things you'd think would be important sort of after looking at an exercise program. And I think the other unique thing you used was imaging. We had that on a really subset. So we had 13 people where we were able to test before and after exercise compared to before and after education. Mm-hmm. That was really helpful just to sort of get at the mechanism of what possibly what, what was happening you know, within the brain ch- changes during this type of intervention. So you had your participants in your study kind of be their own control. So they either went through the exercise study and then spent the second half of of six weeks doing the educational piece or vice versa. They were delayed in starting the exercise and did the education piece first. Yeah, that's right. So what did you find? Well, well, I mean, one of the trends we found across the board, we were able to change dual task gait, which was one of the things we were really interested in. One of the things that was, I guess, surprising to us was that when we looked at the minibus test as our primary outcome, it didn't change for the whole group. And But when we looked at specifically who was improving and who was not improving in balance, people that were more severe in terms of their Parkinson's and more severe in terms of their cognitive function, those were people whose balance improved. And it was a pretty robust across-the-board finding. Whereas the people who are less severe and less had less cognitive impact, their minibus didn't improve as much. So it was really surprising because it was the opposite of what, what we would have thought. And typically we're hesitant to enroll people with a lot of cognitive problems and into our studies. And so we were really surprised about that finding, but it was kind of encouraging because these are the people that actually have a lot of balance problems. And these are the people that were, were improving. And when sort of anecdotally, when I would watch the classes being run, the people who had a lot of severe cognitive impairment or more severe Parkinson's, they really weren't able to focus on the cognitive challenges as much. You could see it that they they were prioritizing the motor aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the people that were less severe, I think were really focusing on the cognitive challenge because it was unique and challenging for them. So they might've been more focused on the cognitive part. Hmm. And so they weren't improving as much in their balance. So it, was, it seemed to be sort of an interesting trade-off. Hmm. Okay. One of the other, I mean, sometimes you learn a lot. You, sometimes you almost learn more from negative findings with studies. And partially, I mean, I, I feel strongly about that because so many people don't publish negative findings. Mm-hmm. In some ways, this was some of our findings really were negative because the mini best test didn't improve when you looked at the whole group mean. 
was until we dug deeper that we saw this kind of finding about more severe people. Another thing that didn't change when we looked at the whole group mean was freezing of gait. And again, like there was a, a tendency for the more severe people to improve more in freezing of gait, same thing. Uh, but it also, you know, leads me to think that this program, we didn't gear it towards freezing of gait. It was really based on sort of agility and dual task integration. So possibly to change freezing of gait, there needs to be something else like cueing, um, biofeedback, practice turning, something like that, that we really didn't focus on in this study. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about what you did for the intervention? Yeah, sure. We based it on a study that we published several years back. We called it the Agility Boot Camp. So it was based on stations that really targeted underlying deficits that people have with Parkinson's. So practiced a lot on like their APAs and preparing for movement and axial movement and Tai Chi so and agility. So we had six stations that we've used before as well. And what we did was layer those then with cognitive tasks that are known to be challenging. So ex executive function tasks and things like go, no go. Mm -hmm. So an example would be like boxing was one of our stations. And so an example would be they'd first get the task to where they wanted it, right? So they'd really focus on like getting a powerful trunk movement and a big movement and a stable movement. And then once they had that, they'd add a cognitive task or what they did with this one was the person leading it would either have them follow a verbal cue or a visual cue mm. to, to tell them to go with their left or right. Mm, okay. So they might say left or they might nod with their head to the right. They'd tell you which one to follow. So it was a really like a hard task. You'd have really a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, and so what we'd find that, as you can imagine, you'd, we'd add that task and then their movements would become really small and, and not good anymore. So they'd kind of back off and practice the task again. Another thing we did was we, we had them practice because set shifting is a hard task for people with Parkinson's. And so, and as you know, when you do two things at once, you're never really doing two things at once you're switching. Mm -hmm. And so we would focus, we'd have them prioritize either the motor task or the cognitive task. And we'd have them practice, like, now do the task, focusing on lifting your legs and, you know, making don't make any errors with the motor task. And then next time we'd say, okay, now I'm going to have you focus more on the cognitive task, just to bring that awareness to the prioritization of the task. Because it looks like you, you were tailoring it to the individual, depending on their abilities, but you were doing a mix of motor dual task, cognitive dual task. If you want to kind of explain if like, how did you guys come up with your paradigm or was it up to the exercise specialist that you had to tweak it based on the participants performance? Yeah, we, well, we had guidelines. They're very like clearly three levels of difficulty. And so everyone started at the, the easiest level. And then the criteria to advance to the next level was based on the judgment of the trainer, really. But we, we went through a lot of training in the beginning about when you'd advance someone and when you'd kind of pull back when you like the example I gave with the boxing, if they added a dual task and then their quality of the movement fell apart, then they'd go back. Okay. And so they'd track sort of how each person progressed at the end of each week. And we'd summarize that. Because people would progress at different stages. Some people were hard to progress at all because they were struggling just even with the motor task. And did you look at a dual task cost? 
We did, yes. And what did you guys find with that? Dual task cost and gait speed um, improved significantly after exercise, but not education. Mm-hmm. It was like 0.001. So it was, it was quite a significant difference. And when you guys tested it in gait, what kind of task were you asking them to do? Well, we had just a regular gait. We had them wearing using wearable sensors. So we'd have them do like a two minute walk back and forth. So we could get lots of different types of gait parameters. So the things we found that changed the most with the exercise intervention were gait speed, stride length, foot strike angle, and arm swing range of motion. And those were all very significant, like 0.00001. So those were like clearly different between the groups, the gait parameters. Our dual task paradigm, while they walked, they had to recite every other letter of the alphabet out loud. Okay. So that, and then you calculate how far they got along in the, in the alphabet. Oh, interesting. So they'd say like A, C, yeah. That's what we chose. That's what we did for this one. And then we would calculate like the accuracy um, based on the difference between walking and sitting. For how far they got into the alphabet. Yeah, correctly. Yeah, right. Exactly. And the minibus says if there's more than a 10% difference, mm-hmm. that that's considered impaired. It's always a burning question for me how that number was developed. If you have any, I know. any insights to share. I really don't know. I would have to ask Faye that because since she developed that. Okay. Since then, other things have come out. Like I think there was a study by Lynn Rochester. Mm-hmm looked at dual task costs and controls and but that wasn't out at the time when Faye put that test together yeah so I think it also depends on people's gait speed like someone who's faster you know 10 percent isn't that much but someone who's slower it can kind of make a difference that's true that's true and I mean the mini vest is like really just meant to be a screening tool so it's kind of just like do you Mm -hmm. see a big difference Mm -hmm. between the you know what I mean and then if you do, obviously you should go deeper, but it's, I feel like it's just, it's a good mm-hmm. screening tool, but I, I'm not sure where that 10%. We had to ask. <laughs> right. Exactly. I've often thought that too, because it seems really small, actually 10%. Yeah. There's not a lot. Yeah. There's not a lot of give. Well, especially if you're doing a short walk and it's like 12 mm-hmm. seconds. So then that's like mm-hmm. one second, you know, or 1.2 mm-hmm. or whatever. So yeah, there's not a lot of give in that. And this is in a group space? Yeah, we had anywhere from like three to six people in the class. Yeah. And then how is it structured in terms of having other helpers or physical therapists involved? Yeah, we had a, the, the person running it. So myself and Faye Horak, who are both physical therapists, we like oversaw the classes. There were two trainers we used, Nancy Nelson and Nancy Barlow, who are like experts in Parkinson's. They both run community classes in Parkinson's. They're really amazing. Um, We work really closely with them in all of our studies. We had them run the classes and then Faye and myself would sort of oversee them. And then we'd have research assistants and PT students spotting people. So we'd decide sort of who was at higher risk for falls. And and then we'd try to spot those people. I mean, these people all have, as you can imagine, all have balance problems and most of them fall from time to time. So that was quite a challenge. Like making the class hard enough to challenge them, but not putting them at risk for falls. So that was kind of our ongoing struggle that we had with a group class like that. Now, and it's, it's good to kind of hear those details as a physical therapist in the clinic myself 
just, it sounds like a fabulous class and something I would want to try, but just trying to figure out how to structure it so that it is safe and at that right intensity. Yeah, because in order to learn a skill, you have to have some error and and feedback in that. So someone has to get right to that point where they do almost lose their balance in order to like internally learn that. So it's always this trade-off with, do you let them go right to the edge or do you jump in? I think that's one of the challenges of working with a population that falls. And it's kind of going back to the outcome measure used with the mini best. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned there was no significant difference between the groups or no significant change. Well, in looking at res- like standardized response means, t- in comparing the mini best, the two groups and how they improved, the exercise group had a higher effect size. So it was in the order of like 0.3, whereas the education group was like hardly at all, like 0.1. So they, the exercise group did improve more than the other group, just in looking at effect sizes, but it wasn't statistically significant. And their, their range, I mean, we had a big range of, of mini best test scores. Cause again, we had a big range okay. of people. Hun and Yar two through four. Most of our people were like in the area of two to three though. Okay. Most of them did have a balance problem when you looked closely. So Lori, if you could help the clinicians like myself out there, try to understand how can we use this information to inform our practice to help people with Parkinson's disease improve their balance? Well, I think one of the things that that is done really well right now in the clinic is assessing dual task. So I think most people, particularly that see patients with Parkinson's, do a really good job at looking at the effects of dual task on someone's function. So I feel like what's sort of the next step is then what do you do with that information? Do we practice it? And what we found from our um, this study is that you definitely can improve people's dual task function and just working on it with the patient also brings awareness to the danger of that situation if, if someone does have a lot of trouble with dual task function. So I guess I would say you know, keep assessing it like people are doing, but start to think about now, what do we do with that information? Can we, do we, should we train people? And from our study, you know, like I was saying, the trend was that the more severe people, I think it was a lot harder for them to work on this. So I guess at this point, recommending it for those early on patients, like the newly diagnosed people, I think it's a really important thing to work on because these are the people that can still actually do that type of training effectively. And then the second thing I think I'd say is be really aware of what outcome measures you're using on your patients, because we saw a big discrepancy between the types of outcome measures that improved or didn't improve. So being sort of really aware of picking your outcome measures to report carefully and not just having one outcome measure, because that might not show anything. It's important to have patient reported outcome and if possible, objective measures. I mean, this is where we saw all the changes, mm-hmm. with different gait parameters like arm swing and foot strike angle. Gait speed is easy to measure in the clinic, but I guess just being aware of all the different types of outcome measures, particularly objective measures that, that you could use in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you've mentioned that you've kind of moved on to other studies. And so kind of what's in your pipeline or what should we look forward to seeing come out of your lab? Well, one thing, keeping in this theme with Parkinson's, because like I said before, I do a lot of concussion TBI work right now. But 
in sticking with the this, we just our lab, um, specifically Martina Mancini and Faye are, are, are the PIs jointly. Um, we just got this funded, and we'll be starting probably in the next within the next like couple months. And so this is a project where what we've seen in all of our studies over you know past sort of five ten years is that well we we know that turning is a big problem with Parkinson's. And we've never really practiced turning before. And so we don't know if that's something we can change. Martina Mancini did a a really interesting paper where she asked people with Parkinson's to walk faster around a turns course. So she had a group of controls and a group of Parkinson's patients. And they did this turns course at their regular speed. And then they did it really quickly. And what she found was that people with Parkinson's could advance their speed just as much as the controls. But when she looked at how, what percentage of time was their center of mass outside their base of support, in other words, how much, how much of the time were they unstable during the turns, mm-hmm. in the faster condition, they were very unstable. So it makes you think, how do you work on turns with someone? You can't just tell them to go faster because that's probably not safe, what she found. And so as a physical therapist, like how do we work on turns with our patients? There's some underlying problems that we think factor into turns like small APAs and, you know, maybe cueing or biofeedback might help. But I feel like at this point as a physical therapist, like we really don't know how to practice turns and what what are the elements that we want to practice to help someone be safer. And all of our previous studies with this agility boot camp, we didn't really specifically focus on turns and turns never improved in any of our studies. Like gate speed has improved and dual task cost has improved, but turns has not improved. And so what we want to do next is focus on a turns intervention, like a turning boot camp, figure out sort of what goes into um, improving a person's turns and see if we can change that in people with Parkinson's. So this is a big, it's a similar grant to this last one that I've just been talking about. So it's like a four-year study. Um, So I think it's going to be really an interesting, really exciting study. So right now we're in the course of designing our intervention, talking to people, kind of getting ideas from the physical therapists and the literature, like what should we be practicing to make turning safer for people? Do you have a sense of how you're going to measure turns? We use wearable sensors. So we can measure turns really easily in the lab. We also often send people home with a sensor. And so we can measure their natural turns in the home. And then Martina Mancini has developed a, freezing of gait ratio where she puts sensors on the feet and she has people turn in a 360 Mm. and then she can looking at the frequency bandwidth tell what percent of the time are they having a freezing episode because freezing occurs during turns frequently so that's a way to kind of tease out how much of the turning is resulting in freezing because what happens with us is the same thing we were just talking about with the gait is a person with freezing of gait comes into the lab And then they don't have any freezing the whole time they're in there. So that's why we've gone to like home monitoring. So we'll send people home with these sensors and we can capture the, how much time they're turning and freezing and things like that at home. Yeah. And I think when people are at home, uh, we just, we naturally are turning in most of our home space. You know, there's no like straight, straight line walking. Yeah. There's very few like straight ahead Mm -hmm. walks in our daily life. It's all turns. And especially at home when you're like, in the kitchen, turning and getting something. And there's very, unless you're walking down the hallway, you don't walk in a straight Mm -hmm. line. So that's why we're really interested in capturing continuous monitoring at home. 
Because also it's like a more natural kind of snapshot of what someone's doing. So we've seen with people with Parkinson's have the same amount of activity as people without at home. When we, when we look at traditional measures like number of steps and bouts of walking, they were the same, but their turns were really different. So we think it's a really good way to measure a person's function at home, looking at turns. And do you have any suggestions for those of us in the clinic, how we can measure turns? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess you could do like that 360 turn and time it, but that's not that functional. I don't know. It's hard with a stopwatch because it's there's so much error in like when do they start turning and when do they stop. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like there's a good way at this point clinically to measure turns. Yeah, the challenge too is someone who's unsteady, like if you're doing a test like the functional gait assessment and you have them do a stop and turn, you know, mm-hmm. you're trying to observe their pattern while also guarding them, you know, if you don't have someone exactly, else that can help. Yeah. So counting steps or the strategy or their are they crossing over? Do they keep a wide base? You know, that's all. It's almost like you need a second person to spot them so you can actually like watch what they're yeah. doing. Or if you have one of those harnesses that you can keep someone mm-hmm. in. But um, it's really hard. I feel like turns are really kind of underappreciated because I feel like that's where the problems are with Parkinson's patients. Mm-hmm. Like they have really a lot of difficulty turning, even in the very early stages of Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's something therapists should be really aware of. And I mean, if you're doing like the timed up and go, just trying to kind of look at the turns part separately, because all the other parts might be fine, like their walking might be fine. So, but yeah, I feel like that's where wearable sensors are like really helpful for that in the clinic, if, if a clinic has that. And any preview to the types of interventions that you're hearing from the physical therapists that you're talking to? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like we're in the really planning stages of what the intervention actually is going to be we're kind of contemplating the role of feedback versus cueing types of things and working on changing the base of support during turns, working on varying speed. But yeah, we're, we're kind of, we're in the stage of planning for that right now. Cause I think the study will probably start up in a couple months. It's exciting. So we're having like these kind of um, group sessions, like brainstorming with making sure we're kind of hitting each domain that we know is feeding into an abnormal turn. It's nice to bring kind of this multidisciplinary team together to try to brainstorm on this. Yeah, no, it's great. It's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lori, we always like to end and ask all of our guests to tell us a little bit about what they do when they're not doing all their fabulous work. Sit in my house for like 30 days without leaving. Clean out my drawers now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's say someone's listening in a year and hopefully we're, yeah. we're out. Hopefully this is like all, uh, in, the all in the past. Oh my God. It's just crazy. I know. Yeah. Before you were stuck in your house for 30 days. Yeah. Like when I'm not doing my research, mm-hmm. I love traveling. I've got two kids who are 19 and 17 so, and my husband's from Cape Town, South Africa. So we do lots of traveling and And in fact, I was just in South Africa um, just recently, and they have a big physical therapy program there at the the university in Cape Town. So I was talking with people about, I'm really interested in like cultural differences between rehabilitation Mm -hmm. practice. It's kind of how I got into physical therapy was when I was in my 20s, I was traveling in Tanzania and met these physical therapists who were practicing. 
And at that point I was like an English major in college. So I didn't even know about the field. And I met these two Dutch women who were literally amazing. And they were teaching people how to make uh, wheelchairs out of old bicycle tires. And one was making a prosthetic limb out of a tree trunk and like padding it. And so that week, I spent a week with them in this little village and um, it kind of revolutionized my whole life. Cause I, then I went back to college. I was on it doing like a gap year mm-hmm. after two years of college, went back to college and I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I was like, Oh my God, you can do that for a job. Mm-hmm. I feel like that sparked this interest in like sort of international. I'm really interested in like international rehabilitation concepts because they're so different everywhere you go. Absolutely. And I've given a lot of international talks like in China and Japan and Africa. And I just feel like the way people approach rehabilitation is like so interesting that it's very different across cultures. So that's something I'm really interested in pursuing. If I ever have any extra time, I'll, I'll do something like that. Yeah. What a fascinating story about how you got into physical therapy. It was amazing. Like it just, it totally changed my life. I hadn't taken any sciences ever, basically. Wow. So I had to do an extra year of college and I just totally changed my major and started taking science classes. We're so glad you did. (laughs) Me too. I know. It's been such a great field. I love it. All right, Lori, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of 4D highlighting an awardee from CSM 2020. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Please share this podcast with a friend or colleague. Thank you to our volunteers, Liz Yates-Horton, Casey Houlihan, and Rose Gallagher. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. This podcast was edited by Sarah Crandall with help from Parm Paget and Katie McGraw. Um, and we may throw in some bloopers. Who is that? <laughs> that was me. Did you have a ding? Okay. okay. <laughs> and not spin off into like academia land. <laughs> oh my gosh, Lori, this is my passion. Right. It's like I basically can't even remember like what I'd like to do anymore. Nice. You guys are all drinking wine. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> such a good perk to your job. So maybe don't include that.